0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you, people, I'm only as hip as my guest, but I am getting hipper. I got this new single-serve coffee combo from Cafe Valet. Their brewers are inexpensive. They're as little as $25 for a brewer and 10 sample packs of coffee, and just $20 when you use the discount code COOPER. Compared to other single-serve coffee systems, you can save up to 100 bucks, and with Cafe Valet, I get a great-tasting cup of coffee, brewed in just minutes, just the way I like it. And that's every time I make this up. So how's that for being hip, people? Now go to CafeValet.com and use the code COOPER and save even more money. That's CafeValet.com. The coupon code is COOPER. And to get this combo for just $20. bucks. i am telling you, this stuff is good coffee. And I wouldn't lie to you. And you know, I drink a decaf because of my health things. But it's still good for you. Anyway, we have a great show. Well, it's just the first, uh, my guest
1: biked to the to the, the studio. Not that not I've people come in and. On their cycles,
0: right. But he rode like bike. My guess is Carl Abouf. How do you doing, know, Carl? Hey,
1: really good. And it was a very nice ride over here, by the way. Are, are you a, now? How long have you How long have you been an avid biker? Uh, I rode a bike for ten years in the nineties, and then got away from it. And I moved back here to to Los Angeles. What it'll be a month this week. And I bought this bike before I left Texas and had it shipped out here. So it only had about an hour ride on it by the time I got here. Texas is not a very friendly bike state. Right. Why is that? Why isn't that? Just because it's. <laughs> I, we don't, at least in Fort Worth where I live, they didn't have too many bike lanes. So you're really up against four wheel drives and it just got scary. So uh, I did it a, a couple times there and uh, got out here, had it shipped out. And this is, I've been riding it three or four times a week now for a couple of hours at each time. It's great exercise. You know, I mean, you know, we don't think about it. I mean, it's, you really
0: use a lot of your body when you're riding a bike.
1: Yes. And to have clip-ons, it's a push and pull situation. So that's your horsepower and you can feel it. it you know, I mean, you can feel that pull in the back right. of your thighs. And when I'm done riding it, it's, you know, it feels like I went to the gym for two hours. And if it was just a half an hour, like today, it took it 25 minutes to get here, if that. And
0: that's L.A. I mean, that's quicker because it takes, 20, it oh, takes yeah. just
1: 25 minutes to get to Studio City oh, from sure. here, usually. But it was bike paths and, uh, you know, the streets are wide and there's bike lanes. And it was just comfortable. I didn't have to poke a finger at anybody. Nobody honked at me. It was just a nice, cool little ride here, you know.
0: Now, you're originally from Texas.
1: Yeah. Now, now, when
0: did you decide, how did, how did you start this path into comedy? Were you a funny kid, or, or, or uh, did you love, because I talked to so many comics, because I used to do comedy, that yeah. as a kid, we watched, you know, we watched The Tonight Show, we watched different shows. When did you start thinking, this is something I may do? I, I think
1: it's, you know, my, my, my parents were actually really funny and fun to be around. They, they made growing up uh, entertaining, and my dad uh, is a Cajun, a, uh, you know, a French Louisiana Cajun with out of, I think there's seven kids. And so they had this sense of humor that they don't let anything knock them down. It's everything's dealt with humor. So growing up, seeing the way that dad, you know, communicated and the and the way we, we moved a lot. My dad was in the Air Force. So we went to new countries and we yeah, you know, I always had new friends every two or three, four years. We were moving somewhere. And dad made the move fun. He made uh, our neighbors close friends. Uh, he cooked, uh, he, t- he had jokes every day, and I think just growing up being around that uh, and his passion for comedy and his albums and growing up on all the albums of the you know early 60s and, and on into the 70s, it was his passion, and I was just around it. So my love of music and his, and his passion for comedy and music also, I think by the time I was 10, we were very, very tight and bonded, and uh, I wanted to be like my father. I think that's really probably the most honest way to say. Well, now how did you
0: get on the path to do comedy then? I mean, you know, you wanted to be like your dad, but uh, you dad- Class
1: clown, okay. a high school class clown. A teacher spotted the, you know, my sophomore year spotted it, asked me to be commissioner of assemblies, which is the guy that puts on those assemblies every Friday. And so it was my way of writing a little, what, 10 minute, 15 minute show every Friday with all the different sports groups that were, you know, going on at whatever season. And so I did sketches with the cheerleaders, I did sketches with the players and, and all that stuff. And it, and it just, I became that guy in school that if you wanted to do something funny, you came to me and we, we wrote it. We, we put something together. So that training, and then and, and right out of high school, I was going to go to a small college with all my other buddies and play football and baseball. And that same teacher called me up and asked me to do a play in town. This is in Lompoc, California. So this is uh, four and a half hours north of Los Angeles, just past Santa Barbara. And by that, Vandenberg Air Force Base was the base I okay. was at. And. Doing that play, I fell in love with theater. I fell in love with acting, uh, taking something and personalizing it. You know those lines, and I did it for four months. And then uh, the actors in the play talked me into coming to L.A. to an acting school. So I auditioned out here and and got into acting. So I started out at 17 as an actor here in L.A. So
0: that was your you your first was love was acting. Yeah, okay.
1: absolutely. So you're
0: in, you you go to the school now. Are you are you getting acting a, a good uh, knowledge of acting when you're going through
1: the school or were you sitting there in the middle going, uh, oh, you know me? No, I mean? no. I was, I was really, I had a great teacher. His name was Don Greer. Uh, he taught at Theater of Arts Actors Training Center on Wilshire Boulevard. I was with him there for about six months and then he started his own class out of his home and started bringing producers over and so I did about, I don't know, 10 movies as an extra. I was in this movie, Raid on Entebbe with Charles Bronson and John Saxon and all these that. great stars. It was a TV movie. Yeah. And I, I, I filmed, I think I was in uh, three days, of two days, three days of it as an extra. And when it came out, uh, the night that it came out, all my friends called me because they saw my feet as I ran by because they were all jocks with me <laughs> in school and they knew my run. We just saw you run by, you, were, you know, and I got to sing a song and, and sit next to Charles Bronson on a plane and, and start this song that the Israeli commandos sang. And so I had to memorize this song. I teach it to the other actors on the crew and uh, went to the store the following day and my went shopping with my dad. And my little brother and uh, my dad yelled across the Safeway, Carl! And I came running over, and it was Time Magazine. It was a picture of Charles Bronson and me sitting next to him. Oh, wow. Starting to sing the song. <laughs> so just that taste of it then and and seeing those guys. But I got great training, and uh, and Don Greer was a, a powerful force in my life and and taught me how to be loose in front of a camera and, and different stuff that, you know, as a, as a person, too, Right, helped you grow. Now, now, when did you start to decide to do, you wanted to do stand-up? Um, because I lived so far away from my acting classes, I used to have to do scenes by myself and inherently they always became little comedy pieces. So the teacher, uh, Don Greer, uh, suggested I go to the comedy store and take a look at standout one night. So I went three, three Mondays in a row and I got let in. They treated me like a King and I was, I was not even 18 yet. I was too young to get in, but I showed my ID and they went, Oh, come on in. And what I found out later, on the third time that I went there, I got busted. Art LeBeau, do you remember Art LeBeau, the radio personality here in Los Angeles? Well, he was huge in the 60s and 70s out here. So he owned the main room of the Comedy Store, which was Ciro's before that. And then Mitzi bought it from him eventually, Mitzi Shore of the Comedy Store. Uh, So when I went there, she only at the time only had the original room. And so, as a young actor going there to watch stand-up, I had to show my ID to the guy outside. And he, in his mind, saw my name, L-A-B-O-V-E, as Lebeau, Laboe, L-A-B-O-E. Okay. And he assumed I was Art's son and treated me like gold. So, three nights in a row, I got in on false pretenses and... And didn't know it. That's just so funny. Yeah. You th- and that's so L.A. And years later, I met Art Lebeau and he goes, I should have adopted you. You know, we <laughs> became really good friends. So when did you finally decide to get on stage? I mean, because you're going there watching. and then- I loved it. Uh, but I I did this movie called High Riders that uh, did very well at drivers in Europe and stuff. So I, was, I turned 18 on the set of this particular film. I got in Screen Actors Guild. I worked for three and a half weeks and I made a lot of money. And it was my first money for an 18-year-old to have in my pocket. And I went to my father who helped me go through acting school for the last year and a half. He was at Air Force and he got an extra job to help me support this acting school I was going to. I paid off all of his debts. I think it was eight or $9,000 worth of debts. And then he wanted to move back to Texas. So I helped him move and got down there. Uh, and just got involved with being around him and, and the gas station business he wanted to be a part of for a while. And I was there about a month, and he noticed an article in the paper that a stand-up club was opening, and anybody who wanted to try it should come try it because they were looking for comedians. So it was an hour away. That was Houston, Texas. I went, and the first night I did it, I met Bill Hicks and Sam Kennison and, of course, a bunch of other guys who became writers and, and were part of this stand up were any
0: good your first night because everyone i did stand up to everyone Ah. has the same story the first night you usually do good and i don't know maybe it's because your friends
1: go Mm -hmm. and you have that momentum the second night you go back you usually suck i don't know if i did good i I think what i did find was that i fell in love with it That, that first time maybe from a sports background or or the acting chops i had confidence and i did a scene i did a you know what i thought was funny but there's that a relationship there that i tapped into in that five minutes that i did that i saw the potential just like any other thing i'd done in my life where i wasn't that good at it in the beginning but i knew i wanted to do it and there was a lot of joy in it you know i i saw like a wrestling move if you just grab him by the head and hold on you can ride this thing out you know so uh, i i got absolutely inspired and wanted to do it uh from that first attempt
0: now how did you, how did your career develop from that? I mean, did you start going every night because you said you were an hour away. It's not like it's not yeah. like you're right next door. like I started out and we' would go to Philadelphia, which yeah. is you know 15 minutes over the bridge, and there's two clubs and a third club, so you could right. go. and this was you know I mean it club had just opened pretty much yes. it seems so so what was it like back then? There's probably probably only like 10
1: comics. It probably wasn't yeah, packed exactly. And so was it every night you could get up or yeah. how did that happen? Yeah, it was, it was I, I my memory it was it was opened uh, six nights a week. With a one night clothes, and so I saved up my money. I got a, a I do, I'd spent all my movie money. Uh, I saved up my money, bought a station wagon, and had a guitar, and put a futon in the back of the station wagon, and put curtains around the back where the glass was, and drove down to Rice University, which was about 15 minutes, 10 minutes away from the club, and I would park out there because I was at college age, and I would play my guitar and busk during the day uh, for money. Then when I made enough money, I'd go eat, uh, go into a bathroom at a Denny's, wash up, put on another T-shirt, and then go to the comedy club and hang out from 7 o'clock till, you know, whenever we closed. But like you said, there was only 10 to 12 of us, so we all had to do 15 minutes. So get there early enough to write and to talk to other comics and, and, and take up an idea. And it really became like a fellowship of all these young guys because nobody wanted to fail. Nobody wanted the other person to fail because it left a, a dent in the armor of that show, and we wanted everybody to do good. So to find a group that was so supportive and constantly, if you started to, to slouch in your act, then we'd heckle, we'd improv, we'd come up and jump on stage and tackle you and, and for no reason. I mean, just something where something was always happening, something was going on, and no one failed. Everybody had each other's back.
0: Why do you think Houston? I mean, because you know you said Hicks and Kinison, You know, I mean, they're they're cutting edge comics at the time. I and mean,
1: what what do you not then? Not then. They, they no 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 no, oh, no. When they
0: started out, they weren't.
1: No no nobody was. You know how long it takes to get a voice. So you, you guys, know? I mean, but yeah. how long were you guys kicking it out there?
0: Uh, a year. And then, a year before I left. And where'd you go? Uh, came to Los Angeles. And now, were you? St- now were you going back to pursue acting or were you coming back to no
1: i I, I fell in love with stand-up in that year. I mean I went from uh, sleeping on the streets to uh, Kinnison and his brother Kevin became my family, my best friends. I was raised the same way they were in church and stuff and uh, I was really searching for a my my personal identity, what I thought about religion and all this other stuff. And so in that quest for that period of my life, uh, Sam and Kevin were my brothers. And of course we're on the same pursuit that I was. And uh, we moved out to LA together and uh, Sam and I slept in my car for about a month, but we got jobs as doormen at the Comedy store. But I loved stand up and, uh, and of course the people I was around did too, Sam Kevin and all the other guys that were, that eventually rolled out here. But we lived on the streets and got jobs as doormen. So, you know, the funniest thing I got to say in three years was, hi, party of four, follow so, me. So you weren't even getting staged? No. I mean, just so you're, so yeah. I mean, why isn't it? They didn't let you on stage? Or yeah. you- well, every once in a while you got on stage. But you didn't have enough stage time to grow. So I looked at it as like I was going to comedy college. I mean, I got to watch Robin Williams. And I got to watch Richard Pryor. And I was actually Richard's assistant uh, as he worked on Live on Sunset Strip. So every night he'd come in and then I'd get to, you know, uh, be at his side, go get his water. Uh, he would sit upside, upstairs in the stairwell uh, in the dark going up to the belly room at the comedy store. And he just want to know who was on next every once in a while. But he'd be working on thoughts. He'd up there working on that stuff he'd worked on all day on paper. But then in the dark, he was working on it in his head, how he was going to approach it. And then I'd come up and he goes, uh, you know, who's on next? And I'd go, uh, Andrew Dice Clay. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll I'll follow, I'll follow Andrew. So I'd go down and tell the guys at the door, and then I'd come back and get him and kind of walk down the hall with him and feel that nervousness and any other human being. But, of course, he was Richard Pryor. But, right. but to stand right next to him and see it in his eyes and, and hear his breath and, and feel that energy uh, that every single person goes through before they go on and watch him walk up in front of a crowd that maybe had eight people at 1230 at night. And within two minutes, there was 80 people in that room. Just the word went out on the street that Pryor was working out. And, you know, to see how loved he was. And the standing ovation to walk up there, do five minutes. One of it was good and the other four was not. It was just ideas. And it wasn't hashed out and it didn't flow. And just to watch him fail like that off and on for the several weeks that I got to was probably the greatest lesson uh, in writing and and taking risk and chance. And you got to drop everything and fail to get to the nuggets you know and it was just a great wonderful the best lesson that anybody could have ever gotten for that dream you so, know?
0: so now when did you actually start to get the stage time when you start to develop on your own because it's like anything probably two
1: years into it okay now now were you getting up a lot then or were you f- uh, yeah i started to get spots i got my name on the wall got made a paid regular i finally got recognized for uh you know being a a guy that was going to survive it back then it was really paying your dues So if you're going to, you know, be there every night and you're going to doorman and clean up the club and serve drinks and park cars and answer phones and you're part of that family. And that back then it was also, you know, either the improv or the comedy store. So you were you were with one of the divorced parents and you couldn't like the other. And, you know, it was that kind of stuff. Uh, And to pay your dues and to learn and then finally get those spots where you started to do pretty good. And, you know, your lessons were to follow Robin Williams. You know, your lessons were to go up in the main room after Pryor walked off stage or somebody big and, you know, and you had nothing to offer. And so because of that colossal failure and because it hurts so bad, you went home and worked on something. So the next time that opportunity came up, you didn't go up and and eat the shit sandwich like they say, you know, so it's just a process and she would put you through fire to get to it. So now it's great to have it under my belt back then when I was living it, it was painful. You know. Oh yeah, I can imagine it's like anything it's a growing. Experience. Oh yeah, I mean oh, you yeah. sit
0: there it's like and you and most places you know it's changed a lot, but it used to be you had to pay dues at any job. Oh yeah, these days you don't really I mean I don't even think dues are around anymore. I mean no one's you know you know you see people getting a special after two years. yeah and you're like, well back then, man no no one not, no one happened to no I would
1: imagine to. though the guy getting a special now with two years under his belt goes through a different kind of lesson. What's it like to have money and or fame and all that stuff hit you? And you're not prepared for it.
0: Right. And which what always I mean? happens, I always notice that when they go on the road sure. a lot of times because you sit there and, you know, there's there's features on the road that are just insane. And when it's there, if they're in their hometown, if they're down south, you know, yeah. unless you're not good, yeah, right. that feature is just going to, you're yeah. going to sit there, you can go for 10 minutes, you're just going to eat shit sure. and you're going to leave. Exactly. So now, now, when did you start trying to go out on the road? I mean, were you, I
1: mean, how did your whole development happen? Uh, I think the, the, the clubs, people started recognizing you at the clubs. Uh, so, uh, you know, club owners would come to the store and, uh, my first gig I did was I got an emergency call for a fallout. I got to, uh, middle in Oklahoma. So I was out here. I was living, I think five of our six of us were living. Uh, I used to babysit for people. I was that guy you trusted at the store. So these, I made friends with these people and they had a nice home and they left for a month. So they gave me the keys. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so I invited five other comics and we all slept on the, you know, we just took over this house for a month. And then I would clean it days before these people would come home and get rid of all these, you know, guys that were just thinking, eating, and sleeping, and stand up. So I had, you know, we had these parties at these people's home. And uh, so I got this call that I, that I got a gig and it's in 24 hours. It's a fallout. Can you make it? And I went, yeah, I think I can. So I went, I, I called my father. I didn't have a car. I borrowed my dad's car, so he got it to me here in LA, and I drove 24 hours and made it to the club two minutes before I was to be brought on stage, and I thought I was middling because it paid 800 bucks, which was the most money I had made for you know four days work at that time, and I got there, and they go, no, no, you're the opening act, and I, so I had time to run in with a toothbrush and brush my teeth, and I had... You know a weekend of shows I was reading Carlos Castaneda's at the time and uh, this guy gave me some shrooms as I was leaving the gig to drive back to Los Angeles so I did a small bit of shrooms and pot that I had saved up that people would give you during the course of the week hey here's a joint so I had them all in a little bag I ate a little bit of shrooms and I drove back and it was probably three o'clock in the morning by the time I got out to the middle of Oklahoma somewhere on this ride back and it was this particular night where a thousand meteors were going by every hour uh, it was a shower and so i pulled the car out because there was no uh, cars coming by in the middle of the night and, and laid on the hood of my car and thought about what a wonderful choice i'd made in my life to do the arts and stand up and here i was with this bag of pot and i was on shrooms watching the heavens open up and shower and so it was like so i got back home you know the following day i was all excited it was, i got home at i think one o'clock in the morning to a friend's house who lived in a really Terrible neighborhood, and I parked my car. No sooner did I get out of my car, I walked right into a gang, and they all gave me the look down. And I knew as I was about to get into a fight for my life. And then they just kind of let me go. They just moved out of the side, and I walked on down the street, and I went up to my my friend's apartment. I go, dude, I just walked into a gang, man. And I thought I was gonna have to. I had I had nothing on me to protect myself with. I didn't have a knife. I had nothing. And these guys were just about to take me down. And they just didn't. And he goes, oh man. They went after your car. I went, what? And went back downstairs, <laughs> and they had busted <laughs> in my passenger window and stolen everything I owned.
0: That's so good. Yeah. Stories of so comedy.
1: I said, go ahead. My oh, first paid yeah. gig.
0: Exactly. They got <laughs> half my money
1: and all my drugs <laughs> and all my clothes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great gig. So now, now, when did, uh, well, you and Kinnison were friends uh-huh. performing together. When did you guys start? How did the Outlaws of Comedy start? Because, you know, it it's funny. Years Years ago, I did stand-up comedy. Uh-huh. I worked at the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale with yeah. Mitchell, Mitchell Walters. Yeah. And then Alan Stevens was on the show. Yeah. And it turns out he's from like the town next to where I grew up in New Jersey, which uh-huh. I never knew. Yeah. He's like, I was from well, what, Cheer-, 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 Cheer Hill. Yeah. I'm sure because it wasn't really Cheer Hill, and it was. And I go, well, that neighbor, and he's like, oh, I used to play at this place, and I'm like, holy shit, that's yeah. just. I remember the Latin casino, not the Latin casino. It's a little place called Valentino's. Yeah. But now, how did, did how did the whole Outlaws of Comedy start up? I mean, with you guys. I mean, you were all working. Did and You became friends where you would you always try to get road gigs together? I mean, how did and how did yeah? How did it feel when it just blew up? I mean, uh,
1: okay So so Sam and I moved out to LA and then kind of stuck by each other because we had a promise that we're you know we were gonna make it and we kept each other honest in the art, you know of stand-up We, we worked on each other's acts and we were you know, we were around each other every day. We survived together um, and We did these clubs together and got these crappy little gigs together and grew so, you know, it's just someone you trust Uh, a friendship that develops over doing the same thing and when uh, Sam started to make some noise in 84 Rodney came into the club one night and I was in the back and said you got to go see my friend Sam on stage because he's waiting to pick up some pot Okay, you know, I'm just waiting for my shit, you know, and I go. Why are you waiting for your shit? Go sit in the room and watch (laughs) my buddy so he went up Sam went up and had one of those sets that night where he had kind of developed this screaming persona that it it was just timing it was just that perfect night and he put him on a special and became really good friends with us and he was a comics comic you know and uh so after that we went from basically being on the street to eight months later uh going on the road to tour so when we went on the road then i was sam's opening act and uh, an additional writer because we did this this is what we had done for six years to that point anyway seven years So we did it for two years to where it was TV spots, uh, MTV, we were on all kinds of fun shows during the summer, and just really created this big following to where we went from 600 seat rock clubs to 5,500 seat rooms, you know, 8,000, 10,000 seat rooms, and um, our manager's And road managers were having more fun on the bus than we were. So we finally moved up to the bus, but it was just me and Sam in the back and 10 people up front making money off of us having a blast. Making money, you know, off Sam, really. You know, he's the the star. And he goes, oh, man, I wish when we were the young guys, somebody would have picked us up and took us out. So that's when we came up with the idea. To bring our friends on the road. And that's where Alan and Mitchell came in. Alan, Stephen, and Mitchell Walters came in. Because they had helped take care of us when we were starving young guys. They always got us back into the good graces with Mitzi when we screwed up as young comics. And they, you know, they had good drugs. So uh, they came on board. And then uh, younger comics we took out with us. And Jimmy Schubert being one of them that really turned into a, a great comic. Uh, But they did five minutes and carried luggage and so we had a team of guys We did that for about a year went to do a Vegas show And there was a writer named Bill Delaney that used to write great stories of the Rat Pack and all that stuff back in the 50s and 60s So this was near the very end of his career and he wanted to do an article on Sam and it was the night that uh, anniversary of Elvis's death so this would have been I believe the 17th of January And we had all taken a tour bus out to Vegas from L.A. And so we brought our guns because we all owned guns. We all had homes. We owned guns, but we had never shot them. Okay. So we wanted to take our (laughs) guns to Vegas. So we went out to the desert, and we fired off our guns all day long. I had a blast. And then that night when we were getting ready to go to the show, everyone's phone rang, and it was Sam going, put your gun inside your pants because we got security coming to pick us up to walk us through the casino to the showroom. Everyone's going to pack tonight. We're all packing guns. We get to live that dream out. Like, All right, so now we are the Rat Pack. So everybody's got a, you know, a 45, a Colt, whatever they got. is in their pants underneath their shirt walking through the showroom. And we're the only ones that know it. But it's just that powerful feeling, right? So we get and do, we get to do the show. A promise made before the show started is everyone had to do an Elvis joke. So everyone had to come up with some kind of Elvis joke in the middle of their act to entertain the other guys. And then at the end of the show, Sam brought us all back out. We all did a big bow. It was just one of those fun, crazy nights. Went backstage. He forgot all about Bill Delaney coming to interview him. We're standing in the back. There may be 30 people in this giant dressing room. It's at the old comedy store at the Dunes. They have a TV that's probably 25, 30 years old, sitting in the corner. And of course on it is all the Elvis stories from the local news. And Sam goes, we gotta, we gotta shoot the guns. We gotta blow the TV out like Elvis did. So every time Robert Goulet come on, he would always. Blow the TVs out. So we all take your guns out. So everybody just lines up. There's like six or seven as we took our gun. G-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g. And we just blow this TV to shit. There's smoke everywhere. There's gunfire. And everyone's screaming and hollering and laughing. And the booze is being popped and poured. The door opens up. And Bill Delaney sticks his head and goes, What the hell's going on? He's like in his 80s. Right. <laughs> so we invite him in. We tell him the whole story. The next day, the article comes out. You've got to see Sam Kinison and his outlaws of comedy. They're, they remind me of the Rat Pack. And that story became our name and now then you guys played in Vegas for a, a while right yeah oh, we did Vegas we had a, a deals at, at several hotels or for for many years till of course his death in 92.
0: now what was that like I mean because you know it must have just been insane because Vegas Vegas is just insane anyway but if you have a bunch of rowdy comics yeah we're good friends who actually have the balls to walk through
1: <laughs> with oh a gun, yeah oh yeah it
0: must have been did you guys stay at the hotels where did they get yes, you stay
1: we stayed at the hotels but we usually had like you know three or four suites on the top floors so they really took care of you. So you had all that, but we also lived at strip clubs and you know the dealer friends and you know it was just that debauchery of having rock stars come driving into town because they you know Billy Idol was one of our buddies and and uh, you know these different cats that would just show up and, and it never ended. You know, and that's a part of youth and being able to do it. You know, but we were just monsters. Of course, if I had it all over to do and with what I've lived through now. We wouldn't have done it that way, but that's the way it was. It was rock and roll comedy, and it was lived out to the nth. And so we would do shows—some uh, good, some bad—but it was just living that lifestyle where it was just really crazy. Now, what was it
0: like from a comics viewpoint, going from a comedy store to going to a, as you said, like a 600-seat club, going to an 8,000—I mean. With the timing and delivery, because you always think you know people who don't do comedy you don't understand. there's something called laugh time. Yeah, and you sit there and when you play a two hundred person club, sure, you well, might get. It's intimate. you and, might and, and you get an applause break. yes, yeah.
1: and they're but, right there in front of you. But
0: when you're playing a big eight thousand seat, I mean, how do you adjust with your timing and just, you know, you're in a rhythm with your jokes. You know you know what jokes you' sure. do good. You know jokes. Sure. we're gonna do. okay. And then you know yeah. the jokes you do for yourself. yeah, but when you when you're doing a club and like that, they're at a club, uh-huh. they're there to see, Sam and the outlaws right so they're they're going to laugh yeah I mean you could put a guy who have oh, sure. anything to laugh yeah how is that as a comic adjusting just to your craft to be able to sit there and go okay was this bit I just did really funny or was, was it just that yeah
1: crowd? I think what was helpful for me is was the actors training because you know you got big screens left and right of you that are capturing you for the audience so there's giant screens up there and the bigger the room the more intimate you become. Is the, is the lesson learned. You slow down because it does take a minute for that joke or story to go all the way out there and then the reaction of it to come all the way back through the filter of it all. The best one or the, the most exciting one that I ever felt and the most fear I ever felt at a gig was Harley Davidson's uh, motorcycle convention in Sturgis. And Sam and I got invited to it and forgot about it. And we had been on a two-day binge after, after being on the road for a month. And management showed up and said, oh, my God, wake up, you guys. <laughs> and, you know, where you push the girls off of you like the 60s movies. Right. Uh, we got to go somewhere, you know. And they throw a shirt on you, and they put you in a Learjet, and they fly you to Dakota, South Dakota. And then you get in a limo and fall asleep. And then you wake up, and you're in a holiday inn because all the hotels are taken, and the whole town is nothing but Harleys. And you wake up after a nap, and there's a burger in your face. And they go, follow us. You get in a car and you drive as it's starting to get dark through these bumpy roads. And you're bouncing around the back of a limo. And off in the distance, you see these lights. And it looks like a fire at first. And then when you get up on it, you're on the back of Woodstock, basically. You're pulling up to the backstage area. And it's just people forever. And they have a little trailer for you. And they go, okay, you're on in 10 minutes, Carl. And I went, Whoa. and I'm not awake. I've been out of it for two days. And they walk me out, and it's a sea of people that goes, and like 40,000 people to where I, I was just, I've never been more afraid. Because I know it's going to be one of those gigs where they're just going to start mm-hmm. s- chanting Sam's name when I walked up there. But they were really open to the concert. And I didn't know they got one every night, you know, so they, they had these great concerts every night out there. And it was my first experience. And. I went up and started what I was going to do. I did a lot of improv. I started and I said, you know, it'd be every guy's dream because I saw Woodstock on, on the movies, but I never got to see it. It'd be every every guy's dream just to see some tits. And man, the lights went off me out into the crowd, and every one of these girls took their tops off, and the place went nuts. And it came <laughs> back to me, and I had the middle spandex pants was pulled down, so like, oh, yeah. too legit to quit back yeah. in there in the 80s. <laughs> remember that late 80s? I had those on. And I had them down by my ankles. I pretended to be masturbating. I go, I'm not really a comic. I came here to jack off. And the place went nuts. And that's how I got into the audience. And I owned them after that and had the greatest show of my life. And I lost track of time. Did 35 or 40 minutes. And it was just phenomenal experience. Because when you got done, if they liked it, they roared their Harleys in the very back.
0: See that's insane. And that must, yeah, that must be. And you're sitting there. as you said you, when you get up and you're, you have no idea you're going to be on stage. No. And, you sit there and it turns out to be
1: a great exactly. Set.
0: But that usually happens. That happens like in in life when you think, oh, uh, you know what? Eh, this is going to suck. And it's always yes. one of those nights you sit there, you know, this is going to suck. And then the next day you wake up and your head's ringing and you're going,
1: holy crap! Right. Man, greatest night so of my life. Fun. That's right. I think when you forget what it's supposed to be if you're thinking that way you're not in the moment of anything and I think one of the magics of uh, be, of dealing with pressure and stuff like that is not to make it important at all and to not care to but to enjoy whatever that moment is and of course we know it now older but back then those doors seemed to pop open all the time because we didn't care. Now what was it like with you
0: when you were when you had the outlaws of comedy because you weren't probably doing being able to do that 45 minute set. I mean, mean, you're probably doing shorter sets and now given, I'm sure it was great and you knew the crowds would always be great and the money was great. But as a comic, did you ever sit there and say, you know, and you know, know they're going to like Sam and they're going to like you guys and they're going to like you and there's probably people that came to see you many times and you don't know that so you're sitting there going, oh shit, I got to change my act up. But did you feel that you weren't not that you weren't developing, but I mean,
1: how many, how long oh, was the no, sets no. you were doing? That was one of the, that was one of the things we we're doing. We were also working on scripts for TV shows. We were also working on scripts for movies. I mean, so this team of guys uh, were also working on other projects too. There was, you know, everybody had their hands in three or four projects at one time. Just death kind of took over the situation and those things getting, didn't get to get lived out. But as an actor who did stand up, it was great. To do, you know, 35 minutes every night on the road like that, and get to experience those audiences, and and I surely didn't envy the, the, you know, what it was like for Sam to go through the the star stuff and his privacy, and you know, I mean, to see it from that side of it first, and go, you know what, I'd be just as happy with a working career and never having, I mean, if if they would have had cameras and, and phone cameras and things like that back then you know
0: i was gonna say because i was saying i think that guy, we got away with the, my, and the my fact part. that
1: we were drug addicts and all that stuff back then you know it was just it was a one-time deal it'll never be like that again
0: it can't well that's yeah. how i say it to you because there wasn't all tmz there wasn't all the stuff there right. wasn't there was none of that stuff it's like you sit there and yeah we always sit there and go god you know when i was in college thank god there wasn't cameras that's right because you're like man we did some i mean it wasn't it was debauchery it wasn't yes like, it wasn't evil shit yeah you know, it was just debauchery and i think like anything and with comics, and then when we have dark personalities, and sure. you just have fun. So, when did you? It was it after Sam passed that you decided I'm gonna go out on my own, or how did how did everything happen? Or what, yeah, did well, you- I
1: mean, I had always been booked. I was always a part of that tour. I was always a part of the projects. So after his death, that was another time where I had to reassess, find out what it is I wanted to to say, and then and I had no connections whatsoever to any clubs. I was booked. For seven years. You know what I mean? Uh, wherever Sam went, I went. It was just a part of the deal. So I didn't have to look for work. So now I went from living in Malibu and having the toys and paying everyone in my family's bills and all that stuff that, you, that you're proud to do to, I think I made $6,000 the first year after Sam's death.
0: Now, wait, so they, I mean, wouldn't the clubs, I mean, couldn't you live off the name of being one of Sam's outlaws that the clubs would sit there and book you or you just didn't know how to go about it? Yeah,
1: yeah, no. It's just that you got to realize clubs are booked for six months. So he dies. Now, no one can just pull me into the club the following week. I mean, they, I have to wait till the the availabilities to start to open up, which is four, five, six months away. So it's, it was just that fact, not to mention the first, you know, depression. It was the first friend I'd ever lost. Uh, right, and that was a you know a, a process for me too, to not only uh, deal with losing my best friend but losing uh, uh, that part of my career. You know everything we had worked for was now done. so that that was a challenge, uh, dealing with depression for the first time. Now, when you started finally getting the
0: work, uh-huh. it must have been a whole I mean, as a comic, it must have been one a little bit scary, but one very exciting for the fact that. You knew you knew what sam 's audience was about, right, but as like anything, you probably are like now, like, well, I want to grow more, but you have to sit there and go, okay, i can 't do yeah, this well, bit at a club in such and such
1: exactly and plus, I had found you now I had love in my life, I was dating this girl that was just wonderful to me and authentic, and uh there was so much trust between us and and I was hiding a little bit of my my coke and alcohol stuff that i was still used to doing and uh so i was trying to wean myself off that and kind of wean myself away from sam's crowds his audiences too because when you work for someone that's you know got a fame and known for something those crowds come you can't be so different from what he's going to give them that they don't enjoy it so you've you kind of you kind of write toward that, since we were writers for him too, you kind of write toward that style. So they're, they're seeing a show that has a foundation of kind of, it's not the same material, but it, it, it all, it's cohesive. Right. It, you know, I wouldn't, of course, be doing Christian comedy if I was opening for Sam, you know what I mean? So uh, to, to now have that freedom to go, what is it I want to talk about? Do I, you know, am I telling the truth here or how do I want to approach these shows? that was different for me and and to wean away from the drug crowds that were coming you know to to kind of stop that it took me a couple of years now what did you start to focus on
0: writing wise i mean did you sit there i mean when you say you need one to ring across the crowd so you have to change right. your delivery but as once again that's still a part of you so you're still yeah. going to have that edge i mean if if, yes. you, if you have an edge you're always going to have edge. oh you yeah, yeah. well about-
1: i developed the voice you know the 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 my voice, and I just started talking about human nature, uh, and loss, and, and, and depression, and things that, were, that I was going through, but I've always been uh, like a very high energy, uh, my expression has always been high energy, and I think that's because I was raised in Japan, I was raised in Guam, I had a lot of friends that didn't speak English, so I've always been very physical, so after having that physical rap for so long, I wanted to slowly grow into saying something more powerful for me. You know what i mean i i just i'd never express myself that.
0: so how do you st- how do you start as a writer and hit that point where you sit there and go telling you- the truth i mean is it it's i'm sure it's sort of one of those things and i always thought this when you bare your soul on stage yeah. if it doesn't work if you go up and you're doing you're doing dumb dick jokes and oh, it doesn't sure. work you're like right. yeah. uh, but when you bare your soul or right. even with writing or anything where you yeah. bare your soul and they don't appreciate it right away yeah it's hard, I think, to follow Again, up and keep doing it just because for the one, yeah. we're comics. Yeah. We're used to automatically thinking what's to work. You, know, right. you sit there and go, okay, I have to do 40 minutes. Okay, well, I'm going to try right. five minutes in the middle. And then you're doing those right. five minutes and it's dying. And then you sit there and yes. go, well, I'm going to slip into that joke that I told in 1999. 19- <laughs> right. Sure.
1: So, so, I mean, how did you start dealing with that? I mean, did, uh, well, it- I'll tell you what I'm going through right now. Now, you, uh, as you know, I've been gone for nine years from Los Angeles. So, I've been home a month. As of this taping so I've done four spots at the Comedy Store now well I'm used to doing my hour show so to come back into a showcase town and do a 15-minute set or a 7-minute set at some of these clubs haha and these other things that I'm doing it's a whole different muscle to me it's something I haven't used in a really long time so just as I told you earlier about those lessons I learned from prior I'm now applying those again so I'm going in on the seven-minute spot, and I'm doing five brand-new minutes, and it's, it's based on honesty first, and then the joke comes out of the reality of that or whatever my twist is that I want to communicate. Uh, and half of it's worked and half of it didn't. So I'm eating crow on some of these sets where these guys are so excited to have me back in town. They're just so happy to have me here. But I made that promise. I'm not coming back into town doing my A material that I do on the road when I'm here to to do the work again. So I've got to go up and eat the sandwich to to get to where it is I see myself going next. You know, that next level of honesty where I'm at now in my fifties. And what it's like and how I'm dealing with stuff and, you know, the things I see from this angle and, you know, uh, Tinder and all this other stuff that I'm dealing with now. It's got to change. I know
0: it's crazy. So now, now you're doing there. Now you're on, you've been on the road for years. Oh, I've always been on the road. Correct. And now, I mean, I, I, and I, I contacted you like, like three years ago about doing my show.
1: And I lived in Texas.
0: And you, in I town. think, and you said you're always on the road and, yeah. and that's hard to say. Cause I know when you guys get out here, you have a lot of stuff to do.
1: Right. Were you getting tired of the road? I mean, what, I No, mean, I
0: still love it. I mean, but why, why did you come to L.A. now? Was there a certain reason? I and mean, what was that?
1: Uh, my management has a project that I'm involved in. So it, and not only, not only that, but I was out there. Uh, you know, I'm, I moved away nine years ago to go fight for paternity fraud. Right. So I, I'm one of those guys in, in, in life who found out they're not the father of their child. And now I'm not the father, but I'm being forced to pay. Uh, for a child that I never got to know.
0: Why is that? I mean, how because does it time?
1: Works? It's a time thing. Uh, California law is a two-year period of time. If you don't find out in time and your name's on that birth certificate, then you're basically uh, responsible financially. So because of the way I found out and that time went by, so I'm stuck in this situation where uh, it kind of t- you know they took my driver's license and my passport away from me and all this other stuff. It made living in L.A. very very hard for me. So I moved away to go work with family rights and to share my story of paternity fraud with Congress and with state legislature and fathers groups and family groups all over the country. So besides doing my stand-up, I also made speeches and I also shared my story with people that could fight for change. And there's not that many men fighting for other men's rights right it's really you know women know how to bond up together and get together and, and and have their voices heard but when men have these kind of problems we're raised not to tell anybody about it so no one shows up to change laws about paternity fraud we just bitch about it but you can't get 200,000 men together for something like that right.
0: now what is it like though when you when you go and you talk about the return patern, the paternity fraud when people know you're a comic I mean that that's always one thing they sit there they must you know how it is they go oh you're a comedian oh yeah, yeah. And they probably i mean so they, they expect yeah did but did you did you get embraced by the community the oh absolutely that, and did,
1: did they they know that you were a comic they knew your whole story yeah the first uh, the, uh, a not funny moment but the first time i i, I spoke out for uh it was at a family rights rally and i was the last speaker following a guy that talked for an hour about uh law changes in other countries and how they should affect over here and then he sold a book afterwards it was an hour of one of those conversations where everyone's laying on the floor sound asleep you know what i mean it was just monotone and if we just change these laws and i believe that people will you know and it's like oh gosh and then someone ran up and they go hey are you staying because there's a comedian next not knowing i was the guy and because under your name it says you know and, and and late speaker will be carla both comedian That's what I do for a living. But they made it look like he's going to do comedy. (laughs) So here I was for the very first time sharing my story about what I went through, finding out I wasn't the father of my child and losing that child and and never getting to know her and all these emotional things that go along with this this ride that I've been on. But I spent the next uh, 18 years doing this, going out and sharing my story and trying to change the law.
0: This. Now, have you felt that you've made progress? Have you felt that you've brought no, awareness to No, I know.
1: It? I, I, and I don't feel like it was a waste of time either. I think that the people that I've affected have been people that learned from me not giving up. But as far as changing the law, I don't think I put a dent in it. And that's really why I quit. And I've got a friend going, we're so close, don't give up now. It's like, but I've heard that every year now for 18 years. And it it gets very depressing to hear the stories of men in situations like mine where the courts will not help you whatsoever. Well, tell the listeners your situation. Well, uh, I found out that I wasn't the father of my child. My ex-wife told me so. We made a deal that I would—I I was paying her under the table. You know, uh, we hadn't—our divorce wasn't final—and I was always paying child support. I made money and I gave her a lot of it, and she knew it. So we were—we kind of friendly on this, but she—she she told me uh, that I wasn't the father of my child, and with that, we made the agreement I was never making another child support payment. And then several years later, she needed help because uh, it turns out she had some mental issues and it it had caused a a a, a split in her family and her father, who was very wealthy, was no longer going to take care of her. So she was on her own with a baby and she went to the state to get assistance. So what the state did is they'll help you, but they'll also demand the birth certificate for the child because that birth certificate has the name of the father on there, which I didn't know this is how the process right. works. So then the state will then assist her in living, but come after the father of the child on the birth certificate. So I got a letter you know, several years later with an accruement of penalties on it that it, if I didn't pay $30,000 within a month, I was going to lose all my rights. Well, I didn't have $30,000, and I refused to pay it because I already had an agreement with my wife. Right. So that turned into a legal battle. And that battle took enough time for them to go, oh, and by the way, your two years is up, so now we have you. And I didn't know any of this stuff.
0: It's just insane. You know, it's so many laws that we don't know about, you know, and it's something that – Yes. And it's so – it sucks. I think it always sucks that when – you know, it used to be there's something called a handshake deal. Yeah. And and that doesn't happen. No. And everything happens now. Everyone gets involved. And you see it every day with just stupid-ass lawsuits. Like, I've seen lawsuits where you go, are you joking – Right. I remember when I was little, we my mom had canned spinach and she bit in and there was like there was somehow like a little hook in there. Uh-huh. She didn't sue. Right. I think she may have written him a letter going right. there's something in canned spinach. Uh-huh. You know, and maybe we got a can of spinach back. Sure. But it's just crazy how there's so many laws and this you can't just shake a hand anymore.
1: No. No, it's gone. No. So after so. all
0: that happened, you left LA and went to Texas.
1: Yeah, and I was around family because in my my brother can drive me places, and I, of course, lived near the airport, so I went and did my gigs. And then I went and did these family rights things, and I turned into a semi-professional golfer because I lived on a golf course. And I, I got into something, and I was starting to to, uh, to, feel like I was retiring, and, and I don't like that feeling. And I've moved my whole life. I've been creative my whole life. And all of a sudden, I decided to drop fighting for the paternity stuff. Just let it go. And in that decision of doing that, I have never been happier in my life. And maybe it's because I'm not getting those letters anymore. of Some guy just spilling his heart out, telling him this most horrible story of the children that he found out aren't his and that he's being forced to pay for. And that, that ugliness of not being able to do somebody that's crying out to you. And they're thanking you for battling and fighting, but what should they do? And it's like, oh my God, you got to do what I do. You got to just keep fighting. You can't give up. And in that answer, that constant answer of telling someone not to give up, I realized I wanted to come back here because I still had something to say. So I came back, uh, someone saw a project that I was thinking about doing, and now I've got a deal to now do that project. So I'm going to combine these life stories and, my stand-up and my music, I'm also a musician, and combine it all into a special that I'm filming. Now, didn't you do a one-man
0: show for a while? Yeah, I did a one-man show out of New York. And Um, now, now how did that come about? And as, I mean, and, you know, I knew you as a comic, I didn't know you had the acting background. Right. Makes complete sense now, because, you know, when you think about, you know, and I think most comics, after they've been around for a while, go, you know what? I want to sort of want to do a one-man show because you get tired yes. of all the laughs and you want yeah. to sit there and, and you want to flex and it's a different muscle. Yeah. How did you decide to do that? And when you first put it up, it must have been a little bit scary. Oh, absolutely. Because
1: it's not stand-up. The timing's different. Yeah. Uh, I I wanted to I wanted to get the dirt out of my soul. And, and so many comics thought they knew my story. Uh, you know, because I, I found out that it was my best friend, Sam Kennison that had fathered my child. So for years I had to go to these comedy clubs and people wanted to tell me Sam stories and I didn't want to hear them because of the treachery involved in our friendship that, you know, Sam, I've realized now as a human who's grown up a little bit, Sam was, Drugs, alcohol, a power thing that he went through, and he did it to all my friends. Of course, he did it to me. Of course, he slept with my girl behind my back. I mean, that's who he was. And I had to learn to forgive the human action of it all him, my ex wife, you know, and my friends for not telling me and not knowing, because they got caught up in Sam's side of this story. So I had to let it all go, but I also wanted to distance myself from. Him, that style, uh, it made me change my life. I got off all the drugs, all the stuff, because those are excuses to do that kind of behavior. And then I think fighting for family rights for so long matured me in another way altogether. I saw another side of pain I'd never seen is what 100,000 200,000 guys a year go through finding out they're not the fathers and how they're stuck in a system that makes them look bad like they're deadbeat dads and right. stuff like that. So, and the suicide rate, and I almost did that myself. And because you know, you can't drive, you're you're asking people for favors all the time. You can't date because you don't have a car and you're you know, you're an older guy with a life but you're being punished for something that's not your You know what I mean? It's right. like it just really turns Ugly and I decided to turn it around and so by telling the story and making fun of the story or or having fun within the story uh, talking about the the mishaps and the near-death and the uh, Dating and all the things that I was growing through it was a year of my life that it opened me up It helped me to start writing a book and then in writing the book and then coming here it cleaned me out i felt like i like got rid of a devil a demon inside of me that had been on my shoulder for a very long time and in telling someone that story that's where this new show is coming from now so so that's that's got to be very exciting i mean it's sort of oh, like, absolutely. It's, it's
0: like it's like a new beginning sort of i mean it's that's the thing you're like it's your metamorphosis it's like yeah so cyclical
1: yeah and i think it's really interesting to dig into yourself constantly to find out what makes you tick and what makes you happy and in those things pops this new gem of a show for myself to do, a new way to express myself again, and to represent my age and my life experience in a, in a really happy way, you know?
0: Now, you said there's going to be music involved. Yeah. Do you play guitar or what do you play? Uh-huh, play, play okay. guitar. And now, is it
1: going to be? Original songs. Okay. It's, 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 it's going to be shown in a different way. Okay, yeah. I'm not... actually going to a club that does music okay. to be one of the guys on stage to to do what I do in their environment. Then go to a storytelling uh, place and tell a story that takes you down to the bottom without looking for the joke. And then go into a comedy club and doing the stand up. See, that's cool because, I mean, that's cool because also,
0: you know, I mean, I've done a few of those storytelling nights and it's just, it's it's different, as you know. Oh, yeah. it's, it's like, you know, I went there and I had one girl telling like a fairy tale. Right. And I told a whole thing about, you know, I had my heart problem buying Indian Viagra. Right. And it was. But it was good to know they don't have to be all punchlines. Right. You know, you can sit there and you can Oh, no, they don't about, want
1: punchlines. Yeah. And yeah.
0: you and it just you talk and it's like then you sit there and go, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty funny. Well not only that,
1: but there's that the connection you get with that audience.
0: Yeah, there there's no there's no judgment and no. they're
1: all supportive. Yeah. Like they're hanging out Who and doesn't want to hear a great story? Right. I mean it's a fireplace. You're sitting there with people that you don't know that you're connecting with and, and it's your turn and you tell a story that it, not only a that affected you in your life, but you realize that if that same story somehow affected all of them, too. They're right there. It's like that movie scene where you can't take your eye off the main character. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah, it's like, so, that's
0: beautiful. So now when you go and do the clubs, because I know... Are you playing in Michigan this weekend or no?
1: Yeah, Okay. am going to
0: uh uh-huh. Now when you go to the clubs now, do you incorporate some of your
1: storytelling or yes yeah.
0: did you do straight stand up because i noticed. no no no. i'm, I'm doing both okay, i'm mis-
1: incorporating because i got to train for what i'm going to be doing in the next you know six seven
0: and, months. and i noticed that and i enjoyed that i worked with uh Schneider a few times yeah and uh i re- he would work a shop as one man show uh-huh. in north hollywood but we worked at valencia together yeah and it was really amazing because to sit there and say the same thing you're doing you're telling you know you're doing your your comedy and people are digging it right and And then you get real with them. Yeah. And the crowd has the trust in you. Yeah. And and, and then you can tell a story that's now given. It's going to have a laugh. Sure. 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 not going to be like, oh, so when I was
1: still a long story that gets to the laugh because it's honest, you know, it's, it's, it's a real story. Now, how do you,
0: how do you find it in yourself to formulate that? Cause to to make a formula for that, because you have to see it from
1: experience. You just have to force yourself to, to go up. Sometimes I've walked straight up and just told the story of something true that happened that day. And got them enrolled got them pulled them right in with storytelling and then the show blew up after that then the other trick is to go up and then get them with this show that you normally do open with it open with the opening you currently have get them in get 10 15 minutes in and then the old I've got to tell you what's going on with me and then open that side of yourself up because now they're on they're in, right they're on board you know everything's trust life is trust.
0: That's true. Now, I got a question for you. Now, when you go back to the comedy store. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you guys were legendary there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like you were rock stars. What's it like now? Because like, it's it, really weird. A lot of comics aren't going to know who you are. No,
1: a lot of comics do know who I am. And that's what's weird. It's because the stories are now bigger than they really were. Okay. When we lived it. So now they've been created. See, I was a doorman there for four years. Right. So... There's a story, there's that thing going on now when I show up that the young guys realize it can happen for them. Which I remember when I was the doorman, meeting guys that were turning into celebrities that were also doormen and, and, and. They were getting their own TV shows, Letterman and all these guys. They were guys that were MCs and stuff like that. So I know the feeling. So they, your pictures are on the wall. They see your picture every day. They memorize the names like I did when I saw those pictures on the wall. And when someone walks in, you go, "That's so and so." You go, "Oh my God, I know his name. I know his face." And then you get to meet him. And he was a doorman. I mean, that's like, wow, you're me. Right. Yeah, you know, so. I'm going through that when I show up. They call me Mr. LeBove, and I go, nope, it's Carl, man. I'm one of you guys, so that's what's interesting uh, to do it and then hear the stories. Did you guys really take your guns and shoot holes in the comedy store sign in the back? Well, of course not because it would have gone straight out the sunset and it would have hit a car and killed somebody. No. But now their stories have been told so many times that we were like the most dangerous guys ever there, you know, it's yeah, so it's funny. True. The
0: stories are like when you remember when you were a kid and you did that thing where you had whisper in the ear. Yeah, air, and it started exactly. Off like, and it probably started off like, oh, yeah, you know what? Sam had a gun in a club. And all of a sudden, yeah. hey, man, they were shooting, yeah. they were shooting yeah. places
1: in Sunset. Yeah. yeah. You know Dan <laughs> Pasternak? You know I know Dan? the name. I know okay, the name. Okay, Pasternak told me a story. He goes, uh, I saw him a couple of years out here in L.A. And he goes, <laughs> yeah, I remember I was there. I was like 19. Carl I was a young comic. And you and Sam had bought some pot for some guy and realized it wasn't really pot. It was like uh, Christmas tree leaves. And, and you got so pissed, and you grabbed Sam, you guys jumped back in the car, and you drove off. You went to this guy's part of town. You went into his building with a gun, found him, brought him back in the car, and uh, locked him in the trunk of your car the whole night and let him go at the end of the night. And I go, I have no memory of that story that you're telling. <laughs> you would think if I had done that.
0: Yeah, that's how yeah, you remember you know, no, matter, no matter how, ma- know, no matter no matter how times many of that happened. How many wasted twice? Yeah. No, <laughs> no <laughs> no remember how, remember how much you're wasted. You're gonna remember that. It's not like it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, I how did I get home? Yeah. You remember, Cynthia, we drove, we put a guy in a trunk right. overnight. And, and we that's
1: left a, him. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, stories have turned into stories. So now, what's your schedule like coming up? Are you, you now? You have you have Doctor Grins this Doctor Grins, and then the following week I'm going to Madison, Wisconsin. No, yeah, Madison, Wisconsin, to work uh, comedy on State Street, and then after that, Phoenix, Arizona, and then I'm home for a month here to work on the show. The uh, the show.
0: Now, do you do you still? I mean, you said you enjoy the road, but is it just you know? Is it I'm sure you be, love being on stage, but isn't it a pain in the ass sometimes to travel? So
1: It is more from L.A. Because you got to go and get off the plane twice to get to your location. Whereas when I was living in the middle of the country, it was one flight. But yeah, my flight's at 5 o'clock in the morning. LAX is such a yeah. uh, It's like Burbank's Thank God for Uber, though. Yeah, you know? Burbank's Uber great. changed my life. And now, you know, Uber and
0: Lyft will pick you up at the airport. Yeah, okay. Because we did that at Christmas. We came back Christmas night. It was a first night Lyft, does it? How does it know where you're at? You, you, you meet them at departure. You, call them, you go just, upstairs to departure yeah but the girl was like had no clue what she was doing I'm like they, I got the email I know we were meeting us right. she we got the bill and she like tried to she charge us for like three drop off and pick us like I go, no 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 this isn't a $65 no. ride but right. So, right. anyway yeah, yeah. We, we gotta wrap up uh, give give all your uh, social media and stuff like
1: oh, that. okay well I'm Carl underscore Labove on Twitter uh, Carl CARL Lebove is above with an l. Le uh, it's French, Le Bouvet. Yeah. As they used to call it. Yeah. But uh, Facebook, Carl and of course, uh, Instagram.
0: And, and he's got a great website. Check it out, Carl Yeah, LeBeouf. well, I'll be changing all that. it's cool. It's sitting there. It's like, you go, this yeah. is cool. So yeah, we'll,
1: anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. I, I really enjoy this. this is fun. It's fun. just a nice little conversation. I yeah, just chill. I, I biked over to hang out with you. and, I know. and <laughs> you get to know each other better. Yeah. No, people, so follow Carl. Follow me on Twitter. That's at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk.
0: I tweet all the time, especially now with all the uh, political stuff. I just joke around. and pisses some people off, but it's nothing mean. No. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 300, 470s. Wow, 470 episodes up. Or you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. iTunes, Stitcher, one word, Cooper Talk. If you have a Google, or not a Google, an Android uh, tablet or phone, go to the Google Play Store. There's a Cooper Talk app. that has all my shows. And I go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com. You remember when I had that health problem a few years ago? I had to change my diet, so I wrote a cookbook. It's low-sodium cooking for one. 120 recipes. No pictures because that intimidates you. The ingredients, not if you don't have cumin, don't worry. I'm not putting cumin in there. It's basic, easy cooking. 120 recipes, and go get it. You can get it at uh, Amazon or Barnes Noble. But if you get it from there, I don't make as much money. So go to my website, <laughs> StopTheSalt.com. And please buy it. I'll even sign it for you. And please go check out carlabove.com. Keep up with them. Follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. That's uh, at Cooper. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.com. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.